Welcome to the DC Wash Up. This is, oh dear, is it episode seven, eight or nine? We are that tired. We honestly don't remember. We'll look it up for you later. But we have a guest in the studio, so let's get straight to him. He's the national political reporter for The Hill. He specialises in party political funding, donors, and we're very, very happy to have a fellow Australian, Jonathan Swan. Michael, how are you? I'm very well. It's been, we've been trying to get you in here for ages. It's, it's wonderful to have you. What is it you actually do? So this beat would not exist in Australia. Um, I used to write for the Sydney Morning Herald. There would be no purpose in having a money beat in Australia because there really isn't much money in Australian politics. There are very strict limits. The United States is a different circumstance. And the best way to think about politics, I think, in, in America is that the the politicians are almost like sports teams and they are effectively i don't want to say owned because they are their own people and they come up with their own policies but they are sponsored by very very wealthy individuals and if you want to run for president you you are going to have to certainly in the general election raise more than 1 billion dollars b billion so you need uh, a good coterie of billionaires and multi-multi-millionaires to fund you. These are people that I cover, so I spend most of my time talking to the political sports team owners, and uh, they are actually very good sources of information. I, I think they're much more useful often to talk to than, for example, the press secretary of the politician who their job is really to spin you. The donors have, in some ways, better access to the candidate, and if you can earn trust with them, you can... Uh, get a very good read on where things are moving. Rough guess, how many of these, and they're all men, I assume. Mostly. How many of these men have you met? Ooh, a lot. Yeah. You, but, I mean, you meet the, this is the point. I'm so I spent, so, so, there's, there's been 17 candidates on the right, Republican side, right. four on the Democrat side, right. now down to one self-funding billionaire and three, right. uh, two on the Republican side, just right. two left on the uh, Democrat side. But you would have met dozens. Sure. So, so... I mean, what you you meet them in the best place to meet them is in when they get together, right? So at the start of February or end of January, I went with there were five national reporters who were invited. I was one of them. Went to the Koch brothers. They're the billionaire industrialists from Kansas. They're each worth about thirty five billion dollars, and they have a network of donors. There's actually seven hundred donors in their network, uh, and their budget for 2015 and 16 is $889 million. And to put that in perspective, the Republican National Committee spent about half of that in 2012. So people call them a shadow party, but they're actually much bigger than a shadow party. They're actually a universe unto themselves. So I was in a resort in Palm Springs at the end of January with about 500 donors, uh, and they literally rent out the resort and they have seminars and meetings and, you know, you're not allowed into all of them. You have to sign certain – in order to cover it, we had to agree not to name any donors who didn't want to be named. But as far as ground rules goes, I'm happy to sign that ground rule to, to meet them and get a feeling for how they operate. Yeah. This really is the story behind yeah. the story because these guys are the ones that influence directly the candidates because they hold the purse strings. It, you can't you can't campaign here without having that money. That's right. It, it, it's a bit cloudier than that. In some ways, 
they're not changing a candidate's mind. And I think this is a really important distinction to make. It's not like a candidate has a set of views and then a donor says, I want you to change that view to that. That happens at the margins, and I'm sure it happens on small pieces of legislation on the Hill. But for the most part, what they do is they marshal their money behind people who already agree with them. So it's how do we get our guy who has already signed up to our entire agenda, has signed off Grover Norquist, has this is a uh, very right-wing anti-government guy who's got a pledge, and everyone signs his pledge to say, I won't raise taxes. So they've signed his pledge, they've agreed with our agenda, we've vetted him. I mean, what they do is they actually, it's like a horse and pony show. The candidates come to their events and they're literally paraded before the donors. They give a speech and everyone's like, you know, they talk afterwards. Oh, what do you think of him? And, you know, and this is what happens before the presidential election. And there's this vetting process and they call it the hidden primary, which is exactly your point. Do you think, as an Australian watching this process, that say, candidates like Bernie Sanders, whose entire, well, not entire, but almost entire campaign is running against this very process. Yep. I understand you're a reporter covering it, but as an Australian watching this, isn't it just the most weird and kind of almost perverse scheme of politics? It, it's amazing to see how much... So before I, uh, before I got uh, the job at The Hill... The way I came over to Washington was I had a fellowship. So I actually worked on the Hill. Every year an organisation funds an Australian to spend time on a congressional staff. So I had to – it was all off the record. I had to basically stop being a journalist for nine months. And, you know, I worked on the Republican staff of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. And, I, you know, I saw how Congress works from the inside. And the amount of time that members of Congress spend fundraising is frankly frightening. I mean, these are people who should be focusing on legislation. And it's not like they enjoy it, but they, they truly spend more than half of their time on the phone or at fundraisers raising money. It is the majority of what a member of Congress does. Well, that's, now. The, pro- that's the problem. Every that's two- my point. Yeah, every yeah. two years they're up for election. So Correct. if they're not going into an election cycle, they're coming off an election cycle. Constant. And if they're coming off an election Constant. cycle, all they're thinking about is the next one and the fundraising. That's right. That's right. And, and their greatest fear now, because the way America, without getting too far into the weeds, gerrymandering, the way districts are drawn up, basically what's happening is there actually aren't that many competitive districts anymore in America. Your greatest fear as a member of Congress is someone from your own party outflanking you. If you're a Republican, coming as more right-wing in a primary, or if you're a left-wing, more left-wing as a Democrat. So this also feeds into the fear and it's part of the reason why nothing gets done in this in this country. Everyone's going. Yeah, to everyone's the going to the extremes. <laughs> Woo! That is our uh, <clears throat> that is our alarm for this week to uh, get us onto the next topic. That is that's uh, that is amazing, Jonathan. Your book is going to be one. <laughs> I don't know. Can you? How many volumes of <laughs> how many volumes have they requested of it? Um, all right. So that is the the lovely salsa music we're going to take and head into our next thing, which is Florida. Uh, I've just spent the past uh, week in Florida, uh, basically around the I four in the center of Florida. Um, we spent uh, me and the cameraman Sam Beatty did a piece for Late Line. We went. Uh, Orlando, uh, Acala, we went to Tampa Bay, Miami, up to a place called Melbourne, Florida. Yes, there is a Melbourne, um, which it's, is actually it's named... Melbourne, actually. I didn't say that in my piece to camera. I'm so glad I did. <laughs> um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it is actually named after Melbourne in, in, in Victoria. Um, and then we went back down to West Palm Beach for 
Hillary Clinton and for Donald Trump. And what a uh, what a week. Huge. Guys, uh, I... I can talk about Florida underwater, but um, is there anything that you guys picked up on the outside? Jonathan, please, uh, you you were watching as well. Yeah. I think it was striking how badly the home state boy, Marco Rubio, just got thumped. I mean, it was really a really catastrophic loss for him and really for republicanism in general. Florida was seen as a must-win for Marco Rubio, and, and he was really in many ways a proxy for the hopes and dreams of the Republican National Committee. You know, he's a, a young, telegenic senator who believes in immigration reform, or did before he reversed himself. He's Hispanic. He represents the future. He basically is what the Republican Party wanted to be in this election cycle, and the Floridians put down a verdict on his brand of republicanism, and they didn't want it. Well, so I'm for me, that was profound. After the conversation that we've just had about money, mm. how his donors must be feeling, I mean, that's just money thrown out the window of a car, isn't it? Totally. So I, you know, this morning was speaking to someone who is very plugged into that universe, and he just said, we may as well have set our money on fire. <laughs> you know, truly, he said that. That was what he said to me. And, and I think... Rubio's super... I mean, I did the sums yesterday. Rubio's super PAC, it wasn't quite Jeb Bush's, but he spent in excess, the super PAC, of $60 million, including $34 million since February the 1st. $14 million in Florida. All of it squandered. And I think this goes to show a little bit as well how this campaign is so different. Donald Trump, obviously, speaking in his victory speech about how much money was spent on attack ads, whether those numbers were correct or not. They weren't. Yes. <laughs> but the thing is, Marco Rubio's campaign, as you say, was made for TV. They, the strategy was right. They'd executed the strategy that they wanted, was, which was to bring him from that second choice to the first choice. But the way he was going about things, doing press conferences after rallies, asking people to hang around around waiting for TV. It's not a TV campaign in that respect, and Donald Trump's proven that the same money doesn't need to go into ads in the same way, so it's it's a totally different campaign. In Florida, the thing I found and was that he came into power, um, Senator Rubio came into power in 2010 on the back of all this anger, mm. Tea Party anger, which he used to his advantage, and then turned his back on. And, you know, Ides of March, you know, this guy got absolutely uh, knifed in the back by his own people, not just Floridians in the, in the, the sort of the whiter central and northern part, but, you know, Latinos, the, the Hispanics, the Cubans who in, in, uh, in Miami, we, we went to this massive street party and I was amazed that there was old Cuban guys in their 50s and 60s who were like, nah, not voting for him. Mm. I think that's interesting too when you look at Ted Cruz because... The reverse to the Rubio situation um, applies to Cruz in the sense that those who support Cruz on the Tea Party end of the spectrum feel that he has stuck with them. So he does have that solid base of support. Obviously, Trump is drawing some of his fringe supporters, but Cruz has that uh, loyalty reputation, much as he's universally hated within the party, his supporters like him because he has stuck to that, that Tea Party mantra. But the other thing I'm wondering, Jonathan, about Rubio is that he seemed to allude in his speech to another run. And, you know, obviously he's been talked about as a potential presidential candidate in the future. Like there was even discussion on the night that perhaps he was already talking about 2020. I mean, 
what about his donors, though, having burnt their money this time? Will they still be there? Rubio's political future is very uncertain now. I mean, this is a guy who has basically never stopped running for political office. You know, I know people who've worked for him for basically ever since he came into the Senate. It's hard to understate how ambitious he is, and it's very hard to see now... I mean, what's his future? Does he run for governor? I mean, he got he got really belted in his own state. I think his his future is not looking too good. But really, it, it's a bigger than that. It's it's a rebuke to. I mean, it must be so galling for him and the and the Republican consultant class. He did everything you're supposed to do. He crafted a policy platform that was supposedly future looking. He came to the election with all his policies, all the endorsements. You know, the money class, and the Republican base just said. No, we're going to go with a guy who doesn't have any policies, really, except to build a wall and deport people, and a guy who really doesn't have any support from the party. And in fact, that's an advantage now. The, the whole thing about Cruz being hated by the party, mm. that's the best thing that could possibly happen to a candidate in this cycle. So it, it, that, that, was, that, that was stunning that Marco Rubio was always seen as a man in a hurry. Yep. That, that if he wasn't, you know, he went from, you know, the House to the Speakership in Florida to the Senate in the United States Senate and was basically starting to run for president almost straight away. And the, the people of Florida just went, no, nah, not having it. And, and you know, the, we, I talked to a guy in a cafe in West Palm Beach whose attitude was, and I, he saw a sticker I have, on, I've got a bunch of electoral stickers on my, on my laptop, and, I, and he said, oh, you're a Trump supporter. I said, well, no, I'm a reporter covering the covering the." the um, primaries. What do you think of Trump? Oh, I love him. I love him. I'm going to vote for him. I said, oh, why? White man, free speech. We are being neutered. And I just thought, wow. And I said, but what about foreign policy? What about, you know, countries like Australia? Don't care. Mm. Mm. Oh, okay then. That was Florida. (laughs) There you go. Florida in five minutes. Guys, thank you very much. Let's do um, a look ahead. And before we do that, I would like to get to the merchandise because it has been... It's the only reason I'm here. Yeah, thank you, Roscoe. <laughs> um, I've been saving this up. You, you got a bit of stuff, I understand, from Florida last time, so I'm sorry. I skipped that cycle. Um, I've got you something from South Carolina. Oh, and throwback. And you might have been there, Jonathan, CPAC. I, did you get the I Love Capitalism stickers? Yes! <laughs> I've got some of them. Stickers for all. Yeah, so for Australians, we've been talking about the, um, talking about the, the money class, but, but there's, there's also this political, um, political sort of organisations that operate outside that, uh, that, that. Well, the donors go to them clearly as well. Uh, I saw Grover Norquist out the back when Marco Rubio came in. Um, but I saw... Um, Amazing sort of organisation um, in terms of how they bring everyone together and parade them and decide on, on whether they like them or not based on what their policies are. And the fact that Donald Trump um, decided not to go was seen as a big slap in the face for establishment republicanism. Um, and the fact that John Kasich, Governor John Kasich, went, even though these guys really don't like him, but they still applauded him. They respected him for coming. It was that, that was quite interesting. Anyway... Sorry, merchandise. Let's open up the bag. It is <clears throat> a Bernie bag. It's a it's a Bernie yard. <laughs> it's actually Bernie yard um, yard sign that I acquired from the main street <laughs> of South Carolina. It looked a bit lonesome the day afterwards, and um, it was just sort of waving in the wind. So you now have 
your own wow, that is, original that is yard fantastic. sign. Thank you very much. And inside Last that wrapping was a... Um, fantastic. South Carolina, the Southern Belly Barbecue. Excellent. <laughs> That's great. And hopefully I can grow the belly to fit into it as well. Southern Belly bar- Barbecue was a fantastic little uh, next-to-a-train-tracks restaurant that um, we just dropped into for a sandwich. And... Um, Went back to a couple of times from memory. Fruit um, from the trail. Fruit from the trail. It was fantastic. As well. um, I just realised I haven't stuck the CPAC stuff in there, but um, there I are... I know where to find you. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I'll have to save it for next time. Um, we're running out of merch because I don't know that we're going to go on the road in the next couple of weeks too much. Uh, uh, Zoe... Famous last words. <laughs> touch wood. Touch wood. wood. We, uh, we've, we've, had, uh, we've basically got through now. There's only, I think, a uh, couple more next week for Utah, Utah and Arizona. Um and there's a six, I think six for the Dems between now and the end of the month. But um, looking ahead, Zoe Daniel. Well, it's it's a where to from here situation now, isn't it? I mean, I think for us, it was a case of uh, get through Super Tuesday, get through Florida, then have a look at how things are shape, shaping up. Um, and I think it's fair to say things still look extremely interesting. Um, I mean, on the Democrat side, it looks more clear cut than the Republican side, obviously. But the the Republican side just has so many sort of unquantifiable elements still in it around the potential contested convention, around how many delegates Trump will end up with, around what the Republican um, establishment is going to do about this, and about this continued mentality of the population to seek some sort of authenticity, be that negative or positive authenticity, just that I will say whatever is in my head and make you believe it uh, kind of mentality that they get from Trump and to some extent from Cruz as well, and we've seen that with Sanders, and what that actually means going forward. I mean, I think the Rubio thing's been quite interesting in that, to me... The rejection of him is about the re- the rejection of his lack of authenticity, the same as the others who've fallen away, who've been rejected by the voters. Because, you know, I've been at lots of Rubio events and I've seen his interaction with people. And while he's obviously a great politician and he can talk the talk, he doesn't smile with his eyes when he's meeting people. And I think people sense that. And they saw him as part of a machine as part of a system and that's why he's been rejected so what happens now trump predicts riots if there's a contested convention and we've already seen some interesting um and violent and concerning activity at some of his rallies uh, and that i think is what we'll be watching from here on the um, on the riot thing as well um you'll see some reporting talking about um the police department in cleveland you know, manning up with more riot gear. But if you actually have a look as well, there's a lot of money in the budget for a lot of things. There's also 300 new bicycles going to the local police force. So yeah, be careful when you're reading some of that stuff as well. That's the convention in Cleveland, Ohio in July. Wow. Uh, we were there last year for the first um, Republican debate, and I can tell you the security was straightforward. It was, you know, there was not, no... There, was, there were protesters out the front, but the police were sort of very relaxed. I don't think that's going to be the case this time if... Donald Trump has any whiff that he's not going to get the nomination. Um, Jonathan, on the numbers, do you think um, you know? Do you think Donald Trump's the uh, shoe in at this stage? I actually think uh, if you're going to weigh probability, 
the more likely scenario is that Donald Trump doesn't quite get to 1237 delegates, which is what you need to win the nomination. Mm. So, you know, a lot of uh, very experienced Republican operatives now are gaming out a scenario in which Donald Trump goes into the convention with, say, 1,150 delegates. And then you're in this really interesting situation between the last primary in California and the convention in Cleveland where there's going to be Donald Trump's people negotiating, trying to get that last 100 or 150 delegates. You've got Kasich's people who've got a certain number. There'll be negotiations going on maybe between him and Ted Cruz. Can we bind together? Can Trump convince one of them? So I think either way, Trump goes into the convention, let's say, with 1237. The whole party's going to split in half because there are people who just will never go with Trump. Trump goes in with 1150. They're quite conceivably could be riots and there will certainly be mayhem and if it's not decided in the first two or three ballots this could be like 1924 100 ballots i mean we're looking at utter chaos yeah and the thing is that the other sort of thing that people need to understand is some of these convention rules can be changed before the convention oh, yeah. now the, the problem with that uh if you look at it on a political basis Okay, sure, there's the horse trading that's going to go on with Cruz and Kasich trying to get the numbers. But from the perspective of the population, that is going to look like political scheming to prevent a democratic process from coming to fruition. And that is what will make things get ugly. That's a really important point. If if we've learnt nothing from this election, we've learnt that things like social media and Twitter count because you can quote Donald Trump directly off Twitter. And if Donald Trump is inside the room and he says they're going to stop me from getting the nomination, press send, boom. That's, yes. And and where will we be? (laughs) In the room. (laughs) Wonderful. Thank you very much, guys. That is the DC wash-up for this latest episode. We'll look up which one it is later and make sure we get it right on uh, on the internet. Thank you very much, Jonathan Swan, from coming in. Uh, We look forward to having you back here in the studio. Sure. And um, it's been a fascinating campaign. We've got a long way to go. And Zoe Daniel, Bureau Chief, uh, Roscoe Whalen, thank you very much, guys. And we'll talk to you guys next week.